This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Big pitch coming up right here. Seawall checks the runner. Here we go. Three and two. See what he goes with. Three, two. Back door. Got him! It's their eighth win by that count this season. It's their 10th consecutive win, seven consecutive series wins. They're five games, Dan Wilson, five games beyond 500. How about that? Outstanding ball game, outstanding job. Keep it rolling, boys. It is an RNC behind that first base dugout, ready to erupt. A team that was 24 and 35, one month and three days ago. And there it is, 10 consecutive wins, three consecutive sweeps, and a team that was 58 games under in 2021 has a winning record on July the 13th of 2022. Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. My name is Mike Petriello. I'm a writer and researcher at MLB.com, joined by Matt Myers, MLB.com National Content Editor. Today is Thursday, July 14th. We are heading into the All-Star break. We have a couple of things we want to get to. We obviously have to start with the fact that both the Orioles and the Mariners are on 10-game win streaks, which I have to say I did not expect coming into the year. Matt really wants to get into how uh, Lindor is underrated, which I kind of like. We'll talk about that. Uh, the <laughs> I like it when I have joke tweets that turn into actual topics here. The Angels really do have the top heaviest lineup of all time, and I can prove it. And hey, if you didn't notice, we broke out some really interesting new technology tracking the speed of a bat, which we'll talk about. And then, of course, Matt and I each have guys you should know a little bit more about. Matt's guy was a top five overall draft pick. I think maybe you've heard his name before. Matt, I guess we have to start with the Orioles and the Mariners, who each have 10-game win streaks. The last day this was true, that multiple teams had 10-game or more winning streaks was September 7th of 2017, when both Arizona and Cleveland did it, which I have to be honest, kind of thought it would be a lot longer ago <laughs> than that. Um, but here we are right now. Uh, the American League wildcard race, Tampa Bay's got the first spot. Boston, Seattle, Toronto, who just fired their manager, three-way tie for the second spot, and Baltimore is two games out. The entire American League East is over 500. I don't know what to make of that, but I think I'm mostly happy for Orioles fans. That's like the proper way to start. <laughs> I think that's right. The funny thing for me is like, uh, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put you on the spot here. Oh. There's a very specific thing I think about when I think about the Mariners and the Orioles together. And I'm curious if this is what you think about as well. Uh, the Adam Jones trade. <laughs> yes. Yes. Or, All right. or is that- in other words, I like to think about it, the Eric Bedard trade, because oh. at the time, for baseball, some of you younger fans may not remember this, but Eric Bedard, there was a period, you may have never heard of Eric Bedard, but there was like a two-year period where Eric Bedard was one of the best pitchers in baseball. And after the 2007 season, the uh, he finished fifth in the Cy Young voting, and the Orioles traded him to the Mariners in a blockbuster trade that at the time— Chris Tillman, right? Uh, yeah, it was—the yeah. Uh, trade was— 
Um, and I realize we're already off on a tangent, but I, yeah. I, I, I'm glad we're, okay. on the, we're in the same mindset. It was uh, Bedard and Tony Butler. Or sorry, Bedard to the Mariners for Tony Butler, Adam Jones, Cam Mikolio, George Sherrill, and Chris George. Tillman. George Sherrill was pretty good for a little bit there, too. <laughs> This shook up the baseball internet world in a major, major way, and I will forever associate Eric Bedard with the Orioles and the Mariners. But today, here now, let's talk about these teams, because I got to say, the other night, I found myself scrolling through MLB.tv, and I was like, you know what? I want to watch the Orioles versus the Cubs, and I have to say, I did not expect that to be happening in July. You know what the number one thing that stands out about the Orioles to me? And I feel like people aren't actually talking about this enough. Do you remember what happened to them a week into the season? Their ace, the only good starting pitcher we thought they had at the time, John Means below his elbow. Like Tommy Johnson. They've done all this without John Means, who everybody thought was going to be really good. They have, <laughs> I feel badly for the Marlins that I'm about to say this, but I am. Their 10-game winning streak ended a 23-year drought without a double-digit winning streak. The second longest among active teams. The Marlins have never had one. Not one, which seems improbable. And there was this cool note from uh, Stats Inc. They're the Orioles, the second team in history to lose 110 games one season and then have a nine or more game winning streak. The next, I'm going to call a little bit of BS on this. I'm calling them the first team in MLB history because the only other team here was the 1889 Louisville Colonels who played probably before, I don't know, indoor plumbing. I say as a joke as though I know when that started. But I'm not really going to apply much about the 1889 Louisville Colonels to what's happening today. And... They're doing this in the American League East. And so our friend Sarah Lang said this. This is the fourth time in the wildcard era, excluding 2020, as we all should, that a division has had all of its teams at or above 500 on July 12th or later. Uh, you might remember this, but I didn't. In 2005, the entire NLE East actually finished at or above 500. All five teams. I have no recollection of that. But in 2005, I was mostly watching a 91-loss Dodger team featuring Mike Edwards and Norihiro Nakamura. So here we are. <laughs> The, 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 stat, the stat that I saw that kind of blew my mind was from Jeremy Franks, who goes by um, MLB Random Stats on Twitter. I've not verified this myself, but Jeremy's account is very strong, so I, I, I feel confident, I, mm-hmm. co- confident putting out there. The AL East is 175 and 123 against teams not in the AL East, which is a 162-game pace of 95 and 67. There's some serious imbalance going on in the American League right now, and it's really interesting to think because you know next year we're going to the – balanced schedule so like right now like if we think that the Orioles are actually true talent like maybe the fifth best team in the American League they're getting kind of you know I don't want to say screws the right word but like the fact they have to play 19 games against the Yankees and Rays and um, Red Sox and Blue Jays all of those teams where they don't get to beat up as much on you know the Royals and um, the other you know second division clubs uh, out there is really hindering their playoff chances the fact the Orioles are above 500 right now is Really impressive when you consider the nature of how the this, this, this schedule works. Since you brought up Jeremy Frank, he also had another note on this that I thought was interesting. They have 45 wins now. You know, they got there on July 13th. Do you know what the dates were in the previous three full seasons that they reached 45 wins? Last year, it was September 8th. In 2019, it was August 30th. And in 2018, September 23rd, when they finally reached 45 wins. Now, I, I, I'm trying to figure out what to make of this team. Now, They've received a lot of heat, and I, I think much of it is warranted for not necessarily trying their best to win or have like an interesting product the last couple of years. And I think there's certainly some criticism to be made there. But I also think people maybe underestimate where this franchise was 
when the uh, you know Dan Duquette Buck Showalter era ended and they turned things over because that team was forty seven and one fifteen. This is under the old regime, and if you remember, all the guys they had when they were pretty good, they traded them for just about nothing. What did they get for Manny Machado? Not that much. You know, Adam Jones walked. What did they get for Zach Britton? Not that much. And they completely uh, decided not to invest in international free agents at all. Like I like to think of the twenty eighteen ish Orioles as an expansion club. Like that's that's where they started from. Now, could they have put a little more effort into making this happen quicker? Yeah, sure, probably. But if you look at what's happening now and the fact that they have, depending on where you look, like the first, second, or third best rated barn system in the minors, like you can start to see where all this is headed. And it's it's finally like a bright future for Orioles fans. But are we focusing too much on that and not enough about the fact that right now they're game over 500? <laughs> um, it actually, it, it, there, there's a lot of parallels. It actually reminds me a bit of like the, I mean, it, that maybe this is because, like, it reminds me of the kind of the 2015 uh, Astros who were sort of having their first, like, good year after, like, of, like, after this rebuild. And they also ended up with the number two and number five picks in the draft that year who they used on Alex Bregman and Kyle Tucker who kind of, like, vaulted, like, ensured that they would be able to, like, keep that momentum going for, you know, up until now and beyond. Whereas the Orioles right now are kind of having their first taste of success. And they also, they have the number one pick in the draft this week. So it's like, okay, well, they have the number one pick. They seem to have a better team on the field, really good farm system, and they're about to add another, like, super-duper prospect in a few days. Um, they're in a pretty good position. Overall, um, it's I'm still a little unclear how they're doing it, although it seems like their bullpen is a big reason, and that kind of helps explain a lot of things. So a lot of times, like, that's a thing that can really go unnoticed if you're not paying super close attention. I got distracted for a second because as we're doing this, the Marlins and Pirates are playing, and uh, our friend O'Neill Cruz at shortstop uh, had a 97.8-mile-an-hour throw on a 6-3. He is a never-ending source of entertainment. Uh, I'm with you uh, on the bullpen. I want to get to that in a second. But I also think it's nice that this seems to be working for the Orioles because I think what we forget is that these rebuilds do not always work. We talk about the Cubs. We talk about the Astros. Uh, it's not working so well for the Marlins. It hasn't really worked that well for the Phillies. Like Sometimes you can sort of blow it up, and it doesn't work. And I'm, I'm with you on this team. Like, if you look at July, which is not, you know, a little bit longer than their winning streak, um, but it's most of it, their offense has only been okay. Like, league average in runs, league average in, in weighted runs created plus 24th in home runs. But the pitching has been really good, especially the bullpen, uh, the third best strikeout rate. And I think if you challenged a casual baseball fan to name an Orioles reliever, they would struggle to do so. Felix Bautista, who I think was like one of my first guys, capital G guys of the season, is a 50% strikeout rate this month. Matt, I challenge you, where did Brian Baker come from? Do you know? I do not know. He's at a 35% strikeout rate. Claimed on waivers from the uh, the Blue Jays uh, over the winter. Jorge Lopez, probably a trade candidate. It was claimed on waivers. Dylan Tate, like all these guys we've talked about. And I think the angst Orioles fans have now is, are, are they going to start trading people? And how will that affect a fan base that has not seen much success? I think my opinion is you still have to prioritize the future over the present, but also if they're two games out of the wild card, I mean, you're not going to get that much for Trey Mancini or Rory Lopez. You know, like you're not going to get like your new top prospect. So if you're that close, it might just be worth like riding it out. Yeah, that's kind of how I feel. And we talked about this last week. And actually, Bridget Rowley at The Athletic had a, a piece about this the other day, specifically, I think, about Mancini. I kind of think you can't trade him. But it's actually an inter- this is actually a good transition point to the Mariners because it reminds me a little bit of the Mariners last year. Or was, it two, was it last year where they traded Kendall Graveman, their closer at the time? And it was sort of like this whole thing of like, 
for Toro. Yeah. Where they were like, oh, how are we, we're competing. How are we going to trade our yeah. closer? Like, oh my goodness. Like, what are we doing? This is like going to be such bad for morale for the clubhouse and all that. And like, I thought it was weird. It probably in the end probably hasn't made much of a difference. But like, here we are a year later and the Mariners are right in the mix. So clearly, clearly didn't have like that much of a long-term effect. Oh, wait, can we get into bad takes about clubhouse morale? I'm really excited about this one. You may remember like two weeks ago that the Mariners and the Angels got into like that big brawl, you know, and Phil Nevin got suspended and a bunch of guys got suspended. And, you know, Seattle's 13-2 and since the brawl. It fired them up and made them work together as a team. Nobody wants to point out that the Angels are 4-10 and since then. You can you can assign any narratives you choose to how brawls work. I kind of think it's silly because they were actually playing pretty decently before then. The interesting parallel here is it's it's kind of similar to the Orioles. Like yes, Jesse Winker's been hitting well and Rodriguez looks like a star, uh, but the the bullpen, especially the starting, has been pretty good. Robbie Ray's looked great, right? The bullpen's been amazing. A guy we don't talk about enough is Andres Munoz who has been out of control good. He was another guy that came in one of those, I think it was the same Padres deal as Ty France. There's been so many Seattle-San Diego trades that I cannot keep them straight. But that was, I think it was the same deal. And that was the one where San Diego got uh, the other Nola, uh, Austin Nola, who's been like, fine. And that deal looks like an absolute heist because he he is a beast. He's throwing 101, but his slider is better than his fastball. Uh, Paul Sewold, who we talked about a couple times, looks great. Like the Mariners bullpen looks like it is absolutely fantastic, even though the offense has been like, it's been okay. Yeah, you, you mentioned Winker. It was actually when, when that when that when that stupid brawl happened, I was I kind of like rolled my eyes at Winker because I was like, you know what? He had finally just started hitting. The team was starting to play a little wet, but better and it was kind of like, really? You're going to instigate this fight. Yeah, maybe the the, um, the Angels were being idiots, but like, you're going to instigate this fight. You're going to get yourself suspended for six games just as you start get going. And of course, like, as it turns out, it didn't really make a difference. They're, they're on this 10-game winning streak. Winker came back yesterday, hit a home run in both games with a doubleheader. So, you know, maybe it, maybe all's well that ends well, I guess. Um, but longest playoff drought in American pro sports. Haven't been there since 2001. So, um is this the year, you know, Fangraphs puts them in the 50, it's a coin flip to make the playoffs this year. So maybe this is it. They're Unlike these AL East teams, and this is like the big difference, right? Because like you said before, okay, this is kind of working for the Orioles. It might be working, but they're still going to have to keep competing with the Yankees and the Red Sox and the Rays and the Blue Jays. Whereas the Mariners, on the other hand, are going to get to continue to compete with, yes, the Astros are still really strong, but the rest of that division, there's going to be a lot more opportunities to capitalize and at least, at the very least, win wild card spots given who they're playing. I'm going to put you on the spot here to finish this off. Do either of the Orioles or the Mariners end up making the playoffs this year? Three wild card spots. Neither one of them has a prayer to win the division, like just the wild card spots. I think, and I say this as someone who was a Mariners skeptic, so I'm willing to sort of, you know, Admit when I admit when I'm wrong, or maybe I won't be wrong. Um, I think the Mariners are going to make the playoffs. I think the AL wow. East teams are. I think the AL East teams are going to beat each other up, um, and um, there, you know, some, you know, some some Blue Jays skepticism combined with some Rays skepticism with Wander Franco's injury. Um, I actually think it's. I think it's going to be two of those three teams. I think the Red Sox with Sale back and are going to are going to comfortably make the playoffs, and it's going to be two of two of these three. And I think the Mariners are going to be one of them. Not to turn this into a Red Sox conversation because I don't want to, but um, the starting rotation for the Mariners this month has allowed the fewest runs in baseball, 17. The starting rotation for the Red Sox have allowed the most runs in baseball this month, 45. And I know Sale's going to come back. That's worrisome. 
Uh, the Orioles are not going to make the playoffs, and that's okay. That was never the goal this year. The goal is respectability, and they've clearly achieved that, and brighter days are ahead. The Mariners are... I don't know what to make of the Blue Jays. <laughs> this is my whole thing. Now, the Blue Jays get the benefit of three or four games against like the single-A affiliate of the Royals coming up, so I think that'll help with the soft landing. I guess I'm with you. I guess I can't come up with a good reason why they wouldn't. We'll take a quick break, and we'll be right back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. We are back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast, and since Matt and I are both based in New York and the Mets are a very good team this year, we both end up watching a lot of Mets games. And one thing that has stood out to me since we were just talking about the Mariners there is how good Edwin Diaz has been. He's been absolutely dominant. And I keep thinking, man, the first year he was in New York, it was like a 550 ERA. It was kind of wretched. Mets fans wanted to throw him into the river. And he's been great a little, like great ever since. And I can't help but think about that when it comes to Francisco Lindor, who got off to a Pretty lousy start after being acquired and getting that big contract. The first two months he was with the team last year, he hit 194, the 589 OPS, and that kind of scotched his whole season line. But if you go back since June 1st of last year, 782 OPS, which is pretty decent, very good shortstop defense. And it's hard to say whether he is living up to the massive contract he got. I don't think it helps that uh, Andres Jimenez and Ahmed Rosario are looking pretty good in Cleveland, but are we at the point where he's maybe underrated and people are kind of over the fact that like, Hey, he's actually really good. He's a very good shortstop on one of the best teams in baseball. I, in, weirdly, I kind of think, yes. Um, I still think that there's this, there's still like in general, a lot of, you know, myself included, like we struggle to rate players, like to really fully factor in positional scarcity, defensive ability. Um, and I think, Lindor now falls in this weird spot where it's like he's the thing is he's basically with the Mets with the exception of his terrible first month with the Mets and I, there's no question his first month of the months with first month with the Mets was terrible he had a 5.31 last April in his first month in New York and that like shattered his perceptions Mets fans were like this guy's a bust he can't handle the spotlight but basically he's been entirely the same player with the Mets as he was with Cleveland I'll break it down for you his weighted runs created plus with Cleveland was 119, where 100 is league average. First career, first career in Cleveland. His weighted runs created plus this year, 115. His weighted runs created plus since May 1st of last year, 114. His weighted runs created plus over the last calendar year, 116. In other words, he's been an extremely 
consistent hitter. In fact, as bad as people say he was last year, according to Fangraph's like value metric, which puts like war against like what what uh, production costs on the market, he was worth thirty three point nine million dollars last year, which is basically exactly his salary. And that was when he put up four point two war. He already has three point two war this year and is poised for another five-plus war season. In fact, he currently, you would not believe this because the Mets have four All-Stars and he is not one of them. And yes, I know single-season war totals can be weird. He leads the Mets in war this year. <laughs> more than Pete Alonso, more than Nimmo, more than Taiwan Walker, more than Starling Marte, more than all those guys. Um, now, you could argue that the Mets, you mentioned Jimenez, you could argue the Mets would be better off with Jimenez because, you know, he obviously makes a lot less money and they could probably use the money they're paying Lindor to, to do other stuff on their team. Like, that's a totally separate argument. But, like, the guy the Mets have acquired is basically the same player he's always been. And, like, so you can't, I guess to a certain extent, you can't really be that disappointed. Like, this is who you're getting. He's basically been the, he's been the same guy. I, I'm going to mostly agree because I think, I think you're mostly right. I do think some people would have a hard time saying like the same guy when he hit 30 plus homers for three seasons in a row in, in 17, 18, 19. Why isn't he doing that now? Um, I think a couple of reasons. One is uh, City Field is just like an underratedly terrible place to hit. Like not that Cleveland is some hitter's haven, but it's really hard to hit home runs in, in New York. So I, I do think that's part of it. I also think, you know, we as sports fans and human beings have a bit of a hard time just realizing how different the baseball run environment is right now like in 17 and 19 that was like the two homeriest seasons in baseball history and now it's not so i I think to say that he's the same compared to the rest of the league is true but i think a lot of people would say well why isn't he hitting 38 home runs i also think the other thing is um whether you think like on a war per dollar basis or whatever the deal will work out uh, i think you got to remember the context of you know new billionaire owner steve cohen coming in uh succeeding uh let's say very unpopular previous owners and wanting to make like a big positive splash and how do you do that you trade for you know one of the not only like a great player like Lindor is often seen as like one of the best people and he's happy and like you know he's he's a good force for the game and so if you're Steve Cohen and you want to say hey this is different like we're gonna we're gonna be a different kind of Mets team this is how I'm doing it I'm trading for like a superstar and giving him lots of money I think that's a context that's important here too yeah, for sure. And it, uh, you might, it's possibly one could also argue that maybe he might have been previously overrated, but now I almost feel like we've gone too far the other direction and he might be a little underrated. To your point, yeah, he had that one year where he had 38 homers and had 25 stolen bases, and I think he had like 7.8 war per fan graphs. Like, he's probably not going to repeat that, or maybe he will one season. It wouldn't shock me. He is this year probably, he's probably going to end up with 30 home runs this year or very close to it. He already has 16. So, I mean, he. He doesn't hit for high average, so I think that throws some people off. But he's a, sh- a fantastic defensive shortstop who's a very good base runner who hits with a lot of power. It's a pretty valuable player. So to, to put our official position on it, we are pro Francisco Lindor. <laughs> I know that's like the scorching hot take here. All right, our, our second topic. The other day, the uh, you know the Angels have really been a mess. They got swept by the Orioles, and the other day they had a particular mess of a lineup in part because. Jared Walsh had the day off and Brandon uh, Marsh had the day off. And I noted that the top three spots in their lineup uh, with Taylor Ward, Mike Trout, and Shohei Otani, like those guys are really good. And then the entire rest of the lineup was just the grimace face emoji mostly. And so I joked, wow, this might be like the top heaviest lineup of all time. And my friend Jeff Fletcher, who is an Angels beat writer for the Orange County Register, he'd said he'd, he'd looked it up recently just for this year. And, uh, you know, the, the top three spots, uh, I'm not sure what he had at the time, but here's what I have now, uh, are third best in baseball. The top three spots have an 831 OPS as of yesterday. That is third best behind only the Dodgers. 
and the Yankees, which makes sense. Ward's having a great year, and Trout and Otani are basically all-time legends. And the bottom six had a 609 OPS, which is worst. And so I thought to myself, well, that seems bad. Hey, I wonder what that's like going back all through history. So I asked our colleague Jason Bernard to help me look this up. And I went and I did this by uh, basically what, if you look at the bottom six, like what percentage of the top threes OPS do they have? So for the Angels, that 609 is 73% of the 831 that the top three are having. So I went, we went back all the way to 1916. We tossed out the 2020 season and well, it is the second most top-heavy lineup in baseball history, behind only the 1997 Houston Astros, who had, wouldn't you believe it, two Hall of Famers sitting in the top three, Craig Biggio and Jeff Bagwell, but with a huge caveat there, because I know people think of the Astros as being the American League team that they are now. In 1997, they were a National League team, which meant their bottom nine included the pitcher. So I'm willing to say that the 2022 Angels are the top heaviest team ever. And man, do I like it when the numbers match the eye test, because that's certainly what it looks like to me. <laughs> man, I feel like we it's almost hard to do. We somehow always think, circle back to the Angels on every podcast just because it's just like. How can you not? It's so, <laughs> it's, it's so like mind bending to, 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 to try and figure out how this has all happened, having two of like the singular talents um, in baseball history on the same team at the same time and consistently being terrible. Let me ask you a question. Like, there's for the last few years, there's been like a little bit of like, hey, like maybe they should try and trade Mike Trout. Mike Trout signed this huge contract extension. I'm almost certain. I'm almost certain he has uh, some sort of no trade clause. Um, not that this stop necessarily stops you, but like trading Mike Trout is really hard to do for a variety of reasons. Shohei Otani, on the other hand, is not. He is a free agent after next year, and like at some point. The trade Otani conversation. He's not going to resign with the Angels. There's no chance he resigns with the Angels. Oh wait, are you are you are you willing to like a hundred percent count that out at this point? We don't know that. I mean, he was like quoted as saying like wasn't he quoted as saying like a month ago being like I want to play on a winning team. Well, yeah. Every and, time a story. Okay, oh, go, go finish. And, and he's going to be a free agent, and basically every big market team is going to be all after him. So it's like it's hard to imagine. I should say fine. It is extremely hard to imagine. He resigns with the Angels. The Angels clearly need to sort of like rethink how they're doing things. What better way to do that than trade Otani? Not to mention the fact that like it's been amazing the last year, two years that he stayed healthy. But like he's a pitcher who throws 100 miles an hour. There's always a huge amount of risk there. Like you could trade him this offseason and change the shape of your franchise. And like I feel like this could be the dominant storyline of this offseason. No. Uh. You change the shape of your franchise in the sense that you're the franchise who traded away most, maybe the most talented player the sport has ever seen. I'm of two minds on this. Generally, when you know, not just for Otani, when it comes to Trout, when it comes to the Red Sox trading away Mookie Betts, right? Any, anytime there's like a big name saying, "Oh, maybe we're going to trade him," you will never get back the same kind of value. Like the 99th percentile outcome is, "Hey, maybe we'll get a guy who's almost as good as Shohei Otani," and that's extremely unlikely to happen. You you will get a lesser talent than you have now. So. My my initial thought is if you can't win with Shohei Otani, then fold the team, you know, like relegate them to double A. If you cannot win with these guys, then you have larger problems than making trades. But uh, the one the one part of this I will give you is that uh, unlike Trout, who obviously signed the deal and has expressed a, a desire to be there, Otani is kind of coming up on that last year and you cannot let him walk for nothing. So I'm with you on that. So I think what you do is you spend the rest of this year and the winter trying to sign him to an extension. That is the best case outcome for the Angels, is that you keep him, because you cannot replace him. 
But if he uh, kind of makes it clear, hey, that, that's not going to happen. Yeah, then I guess you do think about it, because if there's anything that this Angels team has proven, as we kind of just expressed via numbers, you cannot have a top heavy team. Stars and scrubs may work in the NBA. It does not work in baseball. You need to have depth and they do not have depth. So if you can turn Otani into, I don't even know, how could you even come up with a trade for him? Six very good players, then maybe maybe that does benefit your team a little more than one Otani. But man, if you don't get that right, I mean, how many years have we, we compare Ruth to Otani, right? How many years have we been talking about the Red Sox trading away Babe Ruth or selling Babe Ruth or whatever? You don't want to be that team because like, that's the huge risk here. I guess that's, I mean, you're right, but I just, it's, you can't, you can't let him walk for nothing. And I don't think, I, hey, I could be wrong. I don't think he's going to sign an extension. I mean, I, I guess everyone's got their price. So I guess, you know, maybe they will, will get there, but um, I think this is this is the story of the offseason. I don't think you trade him at the deadline this year because you won't be able to sort of like no. fully no. flesh out the trade and like you won't get. But I think this offseason there's a chance like the best package you're going to get would be this offseason, and it's I think it's going to be a big storyline. Yeah, I, well, here's my advice to any fan who wants to come up with a potential trade offer for their team to Atani. Whatever you think it is, double it, and then also accept you're taking back like Anthony Rendon's contract. Like, I think that's the only way this works. All right, let's move on to our third topic and let's get a little nerdy here. Uh, there's a new-ish StatCast feature that we've been working hard on for a couple weeks that I wrote about today that I think is pretty cool. You think about all the things StatCast has been able to track, spin rate, and exit velocity, and running speed, and home run distance, and all this stuff. It's never really been able to track the bat itself. You know, like how fast is the bat being swung? At what angle? Where on the bat are you making contact? Like the, the formulative measure of baseball contacting the baseball with the bat. We've never really had anything on that, at least in-game, right? There's been wearables. You can do it in laboratory settings. That's all been really interesting and important work, but you've never been able to measure it in the context of a real regular season game. And earlier this year in Houston and at Dodger Stadium, they upgraded to these extremely high frame rate cameras, 300 frames per second. That would allow for bat tracking. And, you know, we were able to get our hands on that data and make some takeaways. And it's it's really interesting. And the overwhelming caveat that's going to color everything else I'm about to say is it's just guys who came through Houston and L.A. since like mid-May. Haven't seen the Blue Jays since then. I don't know what Vlad Jr.'s numbers are. Haven't seen the Red Sox. I don't know what Devers' numbers are. So consider that to be a caveat, just based on guys we've seen. Uh, but it's it's cool. Like, you look at swing speed, which is measured at the sweet spot, six inches from the top of the bat. And I was wondering how many swings we would need to like actually get any usable information. Well, the top of the list here in terms of swing speed, Julio Rodriguez, Luis Robert, Giancarlo Stanton, uh, the bottom of the list, uh, Stephen Kwan, Luke Williams, Patrick Mazika, and Andrelton Simmons. I mean, that sounds like there's something there. I should point out, by the way, Patrick Mazika liked my tweet about it. So I'm very curious to see what he's reading right now. Sorry, Patrick, if you're listening, but you're a good catcher. We'll leave it at that. Um, it's cool. Like this is this is sort of the next frontier, and the hope is it'll be expanded to all 30 parks. Like that's kind of like where we are at this point. But it, it's cool to be able to at least share what has been seen so far and say, hey, this might be useful and interesting information. Totally, and it's it's. I mean, I, I've gotten mostly I've gotten the glimpse that the public has gotten reading your story, Mike, and talking to you a little bit about it. You know, behind the scenes. Um, as you said, it's like it's a, a fraction of data right now, so we're just kind of picking apart little things. And I think there's a lot of things where you want to jump. It's it's hard not to jump to conclusions, so you kind of have to check yourself. Be like, I don't want to read too much into this. Um, but there are some things from like from your piece that like 
really kind of jumped out to me. A perfect example was when you're talking about the plane of swings and like who has uppercut versus who has a flat swing. And one of the players you mentioned as having like one of the flattest swings was Kibrian Hayes, right? And he's a guy who you look at his hard hit rate and look at the the, the the maximum exit velocity that he's reached, and you're like, wow, that guy hits the ball really hard. Why does he only have like why does he not hit any home runs? It's like okay, oh, this is interesting. This actually, this sort of might explain why this guy who hits the ball as hard as almost anyone in baseball in the non-like Judge Stanton division is not hitting a lot of home runs. It's because he has like a, a the swing plane of Stephen Kwan and Brendan Nimmo. Like okay, that that's interesting. That might tell me something. Yeah, and, and it's cool because you'll be able to the the lowest hanging fruit here, I think, is swing speed, right? So it's cool to say, oh yeah, like. Julio Rodriguez swings it really fast and Jazz Chisholm swings it really fast and, you know, Stephen Kwan doesn't. And I think that's cool. But um, what we're going to learn is maybe how to weight these different inputs. Like how much does swing speed matter versus how much does squaring up the ball well matter? Like obviously you don't want to hit it off the end of the bat. You want to hit it at the sweet spot. Plus how much does the attack angle, as you kind of mentioned, matter? You know, and, it, and it's it's going to end up being a combination of all these things, sort of as you mentioned to me offline the other day, like raw spin rate was cool. And then it was like, well, we need more than that. We need to know like the direction of the spin and how does all that work together? What I'm interested in knowing, and we don't have this obviously, is how, how might this skill age over time? Because you look at the top of the leaderboard, Rodriguez is pretty young. At least Robert is pretty young. Okay, Stanton, I think, is like an all-time outlier. A lot of these, you know, Jazz Chisholm is young. Bobby Witt Jr. is on this list. I think I think there might be a pretty good aging component to this, especially because Justin Turner is like at the, the bottom of the Dodgers list. And I love Justin Turner. Um, but what I don't know is, is, is he's, he has he just kind of like overcome that every year of his career? Or is this like a new thing for him? We don't know that. Obviously, we can't know that. But I think that's where it gets interesting, too. Yeah. And as I said to you, when we were talking about spin rate, it's, I feel like there's going to be like things on the extremes that become extremely obvious. But in the middle, it'll it's there's going to be so much to parse you kind of alluded to. Like another example, and this was not in Mike's piece, but something that I'd asked him about, because I'd asked him, you know, um, I had asked him about Dom Smith on the Mets, who now hasn't homered in over a year. And I was like, I wonder if it's just he's got like a really slow bat. Right. And I was like, because he had, you know, we'd seen Mazika at the bottom of the list. And I was like, you know, Mike, what, from what you, from what we have, and again, the Mets, this is what, three games in Dodger Stadium. So it's, we're talking small samples. Yeah. But Dom Smith had basically the same average swing speed as Francisco Lindor. And as we just discussed, Lindor hits a lot of home runs. So like, it's not just swing speed. There's more, there's more to it than just that. So it's like, it's just another layer and thing to parse. But it also, you know, as the, with the Hayes example I just gave, like, it, it, it can be an indicator of like, oh, this is telling me something. It doesn't tell me everything, but this helps sort of exp- this is helping explain something that I always wondered about. Yeah, I think I think some people may roll their eyes and go, oh, God, another thing to measure, another nerd, th- nerd thing. But um, <laughs> as I embedded a picture of it in the piece, Ted Williams was talking about this and drawing pictures of it by hand 50 years ago. I mean, this is exactly what Ted Williams is trying to say. Like, I don't want a totally flat swing. I want a bit of a, an angled swing. Like, I think if Ted Williams was playing now, he'd be Joey Votto, but better in that sense, just in the way he approaches things. And I should mention, um, you know, we're, they're not going to be leaderboards of this yet because it's only in the two parks. Hopefully that would be like a future state if we get all 30 parks. But if you want to see more of this, uh, we are doing an ESPN2 StatCast Nerdcast of the Home Run Derby where there's going to be some cool videos and leaderboards and stuff of that. And hey, Julio Rodriguez is going to be in the Derby. So that would be super cool. Pete Alonso too. We will take a quick break and Matt and I will each be back and talk about a guy you should talk about a little bit more. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Miranda two for four. Hater from the stretch. And a 1-0 pitch. A swing and a fly ball into left field and deep. Back it goes. Deep it goes. Twins win. Twins win. The Minnesota Twins, another walk-off win here at Target Field. Jose Miranda launching his eighth home run of the season. It comes off the bat of Miranda. A second deck game-winning three-run shot. And the Twins beat Milwaukee 4-1. We're back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Mike and Matt, we like to end each show with a look at a player that you should know a little bit more about. My player is extremely fortunate for me. I swear I was thinking about him three days ago. And then last night, he hit a walk-off homer against Josh Hader. So, hooray for me. I also like to at least have one interesting non-baseball fact about my guys. And this guy's got a good one. Jose Miranda of the Twins. Just turned 24 two weeks ago. And he's got eight home runs and a 118 OPS+. And you may say, okay, like that's fine. Why is this interesting? Well... When he got called up in May, he was actually awful for the first two weeks. His first 14 games, he had just five hits. They actually tried to send him down, but he came back within 24 hours when the player he was sent down for, Royce Lewis, Royce Lewis was injured and out for the season. So he came right back. Since May 20th, he has been the best rookie hitter in baseball. And yes, I'm including Julio Rodriguez in that. He's hitting 331, 366, 581. In fact, since May 20th, a minimum of 100 plate appearances. He's the eighth best hitter, not just rookies. And the list above him, Alvarez, Goldschmidt, Kirk, Abreu, Riley, Devers, Harper, Jose Miranda. So you're thinking, well, maybe I need to know about this guy. There are three interesting things I want to point out about him. The first is his backstory. He was a second round pick out of Puerto Rico in 2016. And man, did he progress slowly. Didn't even get to AAA until 2021 when he broke out and led the entire minor leagues with 306 total bases. Twins player of the year for the minors hit 30 home runs. That's the first fact. This is like a breakout in progress happening last year. Second, if you were to look at his swing and miss chart, so I'm sure you're all familiar with the nine box grid, like the three by three grid of a strike zone. He does not have a single swing and miss at the top of the top middle of the zone this year. Not one in a world where everyone's trying to, you know, do the high spin, high rise fastball at the top of the zone. It's not that he's making great contact about that there. It just he doesn't swing. Only 16% swing rate in that box, which I think shows a pretty advanced knowledge of like how hitter, pitchers are trying to attack him. And third, and I promised there would be a fun off-field component to this. Do you know who his cousin is? His cousin is actually Lin-Manuel Miranda, who Broadway star, writer of Hamilton, all that, who actually tweeted when Jose got called up, I got a cousin in the major leagues. All the Mirandas are cheering, Lin-Manuel Miranda. I also read that Jose has not actually seen any of his cousin's plays. Uh, the twins do come to New York here in September. Feels like a good time to maybe rectify that. But when you think about the twins, you talk about Buxton, you talk about Correa, and I'm starting to think that maybe Jose Miranda is the third best hitter in the lineup for a first place team already. So that's why he's my guy. He's a guy to keep an eye on. Another fun Lin-Manuel Miranda baseball fact is that he went to high school with Rangers President of Baseball Operations, John Daniels. I did not know that. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> they were not the same. I know a lot about Lemuel Miranda. 
I grew up in Washington Heights, so when In the Heights first came out, I was very excited about it. And my mom still lives up there, and Lin-Manuel Miranda lives around the block, so she sees him walking his dog sometimes. Cool. So um, my guy is very famous, <laughs> um, but I'm taking this this portion of the show to talk a little bit, taking the, making it more about guys we should be talking about more as opposed to guys you don't know about. Because here's a guy we should be talking about more, um, and that's Carlos Rodon, which, like, I'm still floored at how good he's continued to be. Um, he didn't even make the All-Star. He was just named as an All-Star replacement. He did not make the All-Star team originally, despite the fact he leads all pitchers in war, according to Fangraphs. He's he- ahead of my guy, Sandy Alcantara, which I didn't even fully realize until this morning, which I was like, okay, I got to talk about Carlos Rodon because it's crazy to me that he is arguably having the best season in baseball of any pitcher, and he's like not really in any of these discussions of who the best best pitcher in baseball is. And that's a bad job by me because we had this conversation last week and he probably should have been brought up. I don't think he is the best pitcher in baseball, but like he probably deserves to be quote unquote in the conversation. What's interesting to me about him also is that he's really changed the way he's pitched this year. He was really successful last year with the White Sox. This year he's going the opposite. You know, we talk all about how pitchers all the time are throwing their fastball less and throwing their breaking ball more. And that's how they're succeeding. Rodon is actually throwing his fastball more than ever, but he's also throwing his slider more. He's basically ditched his changeup. He's thrown only 17 of them all season long. He's basically become a two-pitch pitcher, but has been dominant for the Giants. His expected ERA is basically exactly the same uh, as it was last year. And he's really a guy we should be talking about more. He's a dominant pitcher. And the last point I'll make, and Mike has heard me rant about this in the office many, many times, which is that... The White Sox have been a punching bag this year, and Tony La Russa has been the – I don't want to say the scapegoat because clearly, like, that hasn't been going great, and there's been a lot of weirdness with the way Tony La Russa has managed that team. That said, last year, the White Sox not only let Carlos Rodon walk, they let him walk without offering a qualifying offer, which is probably one of the biggest front office misses in recent history that has totally been kind of overlooked. Like, when they didn't offer him the qualifying offer, it was like, oh, well, they must... Remember he had some arm problems last year, and it was like, well, they must know something no one else knows. They didn't even give him a qualifying offer. They wouldn't even want him back on a one-year deal. Wow, he must really be broken. He is most definitely not broken, and that was a big whiff by the White Sox front office and probably a big reason they are in the position they're in right now. I have a brief series of yes-no questions for you. Are the Giants better than the Atlanta Braves? No. Are they better than the San Diego Padres? Probably not. Yeah, well, especially I, with Tatis coming back. I, I, well, I, I suppose, when is that happening? Someone mentioned well, that. Yeah, I heard someone mention like, oh, Tatis is like, you know, having another uh, exam on his wrist today. I was like, oh yeah, Tatis. I forgot about that guy. Are they? Are the Giants better than the St. Louis Cardinals? That's close. Okay, those, those are the three teams that currently hold the wild card spots in the National League. And here's my question. I don't actually think this will happen, but it's at least worth considering. The Giants um, are over 500. They're doing a decent job of proving that last year wasn't just like a fluke, even though they're obviously not going to win 108 games or whatever again. And the starting pitching uh, trade you know, group of candidates is really, really like dreadfully weak. Like, you know, Luis Castillo, you know, maybe Frankie Montaz if he's healthy. After that, it's like... Cindergard, Martin Perez, I don't know. If you are the uh, front office executives of the San Francisco Giants who have proven themselves to be very uh, efficient and intelligent and maybe not sentimental, do you consider trading or at least putting Carlos Verdon on the market? If you look at your team and say, God, our defense is terrible, our offense is old, I don't actually think we can go anywhere this year. Boy, what if we traded Rodon 
because he's going to get a huge return because there are no other starting pitchers. Can you see that happening? I actually could see it happening, and you want to know why? His contract that he signed was a two-year, $44 million contract that gives him an opt-out if he reaches 110 innings pitched this season. He is at 100 innings pitched this season, so he's almost certainly going to reach that, and he is almost certainly going to opt out. Um, so I could very much see that, and this is very different to me than sort of like the Trey Mancini Orioles thing, where it's like this guy has no real attachment to this franchise, to the city. There's not gonna, like there's no sentimentality there. I think that is a really interesting point that I had not thought about. He should be in this, he, like that. That's that's one to watch as the trade deadline approaches, because this is, this is a that would be a Giants kind of move. I gotta say. I, I cannot get myself worked up over, oh, we'll trade for Jose Quintana. <laughs> like, we'll trade for Martin Perez. I just, there is just so, there is so little starting pitching out there. And if you look at uh, the, the contending teams, who, who does not need a starting pitcher, right? The Blue Jays desperately need one. The Dodgers could use some depth. The Yankees could probably use another guy. I don't know if it'll happen, but I, I kind of hope it does. Not the Giants fans would enjoy that because I think it would be really interesting for a trade deadline that I'm just not sure about because this is the first year of the expanded playoffs. We don't, we don't really know how that's going to play out. And you put Rodon out there, then it's going to make it a little spicier. And I like spiciness in baseball. That'll do it for this week's podcast. Don't miss an episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying the show or have any suggestions, leave us a rating and a review. Thanks for listening to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. See you next week.